creation cries out praises to God, how much more should we, because he saved us. I'm going to move this. Y'all can't see me behind this, can you? Okay. I'm going to be running around up here, and I don't want to trip over this. I'm one of those preachers, right? I know a preacher. His name's Gene Wolfenbarger. Anybody know him? Gene Wolfenbarger down in Joshua. The man has been known to walk across the back of the pews while he's preaching. I'm not going to do that. We're going to have some dignity up here, right? Well, good morning. Impetus. Impetus is a force that puts something into motion and uh, creates momentum. Now, don't judge me if my science is a little off, okay? I wasn't a good student. But impetus is the force that puts something into motion. It, it creates momentum. It's the power that makes something happen. It impels. It's a stimulating factor. Now, momentum keeps the thing moving after impetus creates that motion. And if the initial action that created the movement is removed, then momentum carries that object but eventually, it's going to stop. I need a volunteer from over here. Up here? Come here. Either way, just come over here. She's going to kind of show us momentum and, and um, hi. What's your name? Okay, this is Mike. Um, Mike here, what's your name? Okay, Mike. Mike here is going to show us momentum and, and um, what's that other word I said? She's not even listening. Okay. I'm going to push her, right? And this is impetus. I'm creating her to move. So you walk, 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 walk. See, that's impetus, right? So I'm creating her making her move. Okay, good job. Everybody give her a round of applause. She's awesome. Wait, no, no, no. We're not done. So now, to make this work, I'm going to push you, but you have to keep walking, okay? But don't go off the stage. Okay, that'd be embarrassing. Okay. So I'm going to create impetus. I'm going to make her move, but I'm going to back off, and her momentum is going to keep her going. Ready? Okay, here we go. There she goes. And don't go off the stage. Okay, stop right there. Okay, see that? Okay, you can sit down. Thanks. You're awesome. You're my best friend. Okay. So... The impetus was that I pushed her, helped her along. I created that movement for her. And then once I stepped back and she had that momentum that carried her. Y'all got that? So if you're driving your car and you put your foot on the gas, the engine starts doing what engines do, and it creates this impetus to make your car go. But you take your foot off the gas, what's going to happen? Your car is going to continue going, but it's eventually going to stop. Right? Okay. It's the whole laws of... Physics and thermodynamics, I don't know. Anyway, it's big, fancy words that I don't know anything about. I just know how it works, sort of. This is true 
of people, of political movements, religious movements, businesses, churches. There was a church in the New Testament that was begun and it had this impetus. The impetus was that the Apostle Paul went to this town, Ephesus. And he went to the synagogue and he started teaching and talking with people. And that was the impetus, the Holy Spirit driving him, teaching these people. And then this momentum started. And it kept going. But Paul went there. He didn't spend very much time there his first time in Ephesus. But he left some people there that, that, that worked and kept that work going. So look in Acts chapter 18. And we're going to be Acts chapter 18 for a minute. But in a second, we're going to turn over to Revelation chapter 2. Because we're just going to look at the life briefly of the church of Ephesus. In Acts chapter 18, verse 19, see, we see that Paul, when he first went to Ephesus, and when they reached Ephesus, he left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and engaged in discussion with the Jews. And though they asked him to stay for a longer time, he declined, but he said goodbye and stated, I'll come back to you again if God wills. Then he set sail for, from Ephesus. So we see that the Apostle Paul went, he started teaching in the synagogue to people. They asked him to stay, but he had other places to go. The Holy Spirit didn't allow him to stay there, so he left. But we see in chapter, 20, or chapter 18, verse 24, a Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was powerful in the scriptures, or in the use of the scriptures, arrived in Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught the things about Jesus accurately, although he knew only John's baptism. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and after Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him home and explained the way of God to him more accurately. So we see in the life of this church at Ephesus that Paul was there, and he taught for a little while, just a short time, but then he left, and Aquila and Priscilla, who were acquaintances of Paul, stayed, and they began to teach and carry on that work. And then this Apollos who came, came who was fairly grounded in what he believed in doctrine and scripture, but he didn't know all of it, and he began to teach, and when they heard him teach, they go to him and say, hey, let's get together and talk. So they instructed him further in the, the, the disciples' doctrine, in the gospel, and everything that they had learned from Paul, everything that they had learned up to that point. And so the church at Ephesus was begun, and it had an incredible beginning, it had some great teachers there. So this happened, most people believe, around the year 45 A.D. Now, the thing about the New Testament dates with the churches and the letters is they're, they're, it's not an exact science. Uh, we don't know. They didn't write when they wrote the letters and books on this date, 19-whatever. Um, they didn't do that. So we do have guesses and clues based on who was in power, where they were, things going on in the world about when the books were written, when the churches were started. So we know that this church started around the year 45 A.D. you all remember that year? No? Okay. So around 45 A.D., the church at Ephesus began. And this church had some incredible leaders. Some of the most prominent leaders of that time in the church ministered in the church at Ephesus. They had Paul, they had Aquila, Priscilla, they had this Apollos. They even had Timothy. Timothy was pastor there for a while. Even John was there. 
So they had some of the most incredible teachers of that day ministered at this church. Incredible church, incredible opportunity for them to learn and grow in, in, in their faith. But something happened. Timothy and John, it's believed their letters were written in the 60s. Well, the book to Timothy, letter to Timothy, was written around the six, in the early 60s A.D. So the church would have been 15 to 20 years old at this time. And then sometime after this, we, we really don't have an account of what happened in the church of Ephesus, not in Scripture anyway. But John is exiled to the Isle of Patmos. He's basically in prison there. And Jesus appears to him and tells him to write seven letters to this, these different churches, the churches in Asia Minor. The first church he tells John to write to is the church at Ephesus. Now, the year is around 96 A.D., most scholars believe, have come to the conclusion that about 96 AD, based on other historical events, this is when John wrote the book of Revelation. So this church is around 50 years old at that point. Relatively speaking, it's not an old church, and relatively speaking, it is an old church. If you look in the Metroplex, a lot of the churches here are a result of the baby boom, or rather result of the growth that happened in America directly after World War II. Because we have one of the world's largest, if not the world's largest, seminary here, a lot of young preachers from seminary, while students were shortly after graduating, would go out into the areas and start churches. And our church is not really different from that. We were started as a mission or a, a church plant from Smithfield Baptist, or First Baptist Smithfield, and that's where we got, we got our origins. And we've had some great pastors come through here. I found out one time, the man who married my parents was a pastor over at Smithfield. Strange, small world, isn't it? Who is also now my brother's grandfather-in-law, if you follow me. So, Shady Grove, Smithfield, we've had some great pastors come through here. We're about 60 ish years old. I don't know the exact year we started. There's some books in the office that someone put together, I think Bruce Medley did, someone put together about the history of Shady Grove. But we're around 60 years old, we'll go with that. A little bit older or around the same age as Ephesus at the time of this writing. But something happened in this church at Ephesus in that time that caused Jesus to tell John to dictate this letter and send it to the church. Now, when Jesus sends you a letter, it's probably either a good thing or a bad thing. That you're either doing things that are great or you need a little help. Ephesus was both. Jesus is kind of like a good supervisor or manager in his letter that he wrote. He starts out the letter to Ephesus telling them the good things they did. Now, a good supervisor, if they have an employee who needs correction, they'll take that, that employee aside and say, look, Billy, I really appreciate that you're here on time every day. That, that's a good quality to have in an employee. I appreciate that you always wear your uniform and you, you look sharp. And your, your fellow employees say that you were just eager to learn and work hard. And so you go through and you tell the employee what, how great they are and what good things they're doing. You know, build them up and then you let them have it. 
So however, Billy, there's some areas that we need improvement on. Like you don't know how to count, so you can't count change. That, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so then you kind of give them that correction. Whatever it is that they need improvement on, and you help them with that improvement. So Jesus goes through this letter, and he tells the church, here's the things you're doing right, and this is wonderful. But then there's something that needs correcting. So if you're in Revelation chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. I'll give you a second to turn. Revelation chapter 2. Verse 1, Jesus says, Write to the angel of the church at Ephesus. Now, it's, it's pretty clear to most people that the angel is not an actual angel. More than likely, he's saying write to the pastor. The word angel in the Greek is the word messenger. So it could be conveyed as he's writing to the pastor. Now, here's the thing about the book of Revelation is if you got 10 Baptists in a room, you're going to have 10 different ideas of what it's saying. That's the truth. Uh, when people want to argue a book of Revelation with me, I'm like, you know, you just, I'm not going to argue with you. Uh, there's some things in Scripture I'm going to argue about. This ain't one of them. Anyway, just listen to me. I'm right. So, it's, you know, bully pulpit, right? Um, so he says, write to the angel of the church at Ephesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands says, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. You also possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the, first lo the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the first works that you did at first. Do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet you do, not, you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nic Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in God's paradise. The first few things Jesus tells them is that I'm proud of the works that you have. I'm proud that you've, stand, you've stood strong in your doctrine. You've stood against the false teachers and those who bring in wrong teachings and doctrines. And, and this is one of the reasons they believe the book was dated when it is, is because of some of the false teachings that were going around in the churches. And we're not going to get into that right now. But Jesus tells them, good job, guys. You've endured some hardships, some persecutions. You've endured some false teachings. You've stood strong in your belief. You've stood strong in your faith. And you're doing good works. You're doing everything I've called you to do. You're strong. He says, but however, we need to improve something. In verse 4, he says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. I believe King James says you have left your first love. The church 
although they were carrying on and they were doing the things that God had called them to do, they were strong in their faith, they were strong in their doctrine, they had the right beliefs, they had the right works, the motivation, the reason they were doing it was not there. They were just going through the motions of doing what they've always done. They showed up to church and they taught a Sunday school class because it's what they've always done. They went on visitation because that's what we do. They came to potluck. They took food to a sick family. They watched after the orphans and the widows because that's what we're supposed to do. And Jesus says that's not good enough to just do what you've always done because it's the right thing to do. In church, as believers, we do what we do because we love Christ. And Jesus says you've lost that first love. You've left it. You've abandoned it. That passion that you once had for serving me is gone. He says, what you're doing, while it looks good on a resume, ain't getting you no points in heaven. The motivation was wrong. The reasons were not there. And so Jesus gives them some things they need to do. I've preached this sermon here before. You may not remember it. I hope you don't. But it's maybe as relevant or more so than it ever has been in the life of Shady Grove and many churches across America. I want you to listen. As Jesus talks to the church at Ephesus, and I believe Jesus talks to us, he gives them three things they need to do. And they're all in verse 5. Jesus says, I have this against you, you lest you curse love. So here's what you need to do. Number one, in verse 5, he says, remember. He says, remember then how far, how far you have fallen. He says, you're a fallen church, spiritually, emotionally, the love you had is gone. Just think about how far you've fallen. And we see people in America, in our lives, who fall out of love, they say. Because they don't do anything to kindle that flame of passion in their lives. They don't do anything to keep that love, apart, uh, that love going. And it just kind of flickers out and dies. And that's exactly what has happened with the church at Ephesus is that they, don't, they haven't done those things that they need to do to keep that passion alive with Christ. And so many of us are guilty of the same thing. We say we love God and we serve on the committee, we go out to church, we come to church and we do work days and we do all these things. We serve in different capacities, but it's out of obligation or it's out of duty, it's out of because it's what I do. And yet Jesus says, you need to remember how far you've fallen. Just think about what it was like when you first served me. Think about it was, what it was like when you first got saved, when you came up out of these baptism waters, when you got baptized. The excitement that you had, the passion you had for me, how you couldn't pray enough. You couldn't read your scripture enough. You were always at the church saying, hey, what can I do? And you did it because of this genuine passion. Because that salvation was so fresh in your mind. What God had rescued you from was the foremost thing in your mind, and you were so in love with him. 
said, look how far you've fallen. And y'all know this illustration. Y'all know this story. The husband and wife, they're older. They're driving their car. I had to explain this to my daughter the other night. We're driving home, and I'm telling her this story. I preached my sermon to her in the car the other night, right? Except I didn't walk back and forth. I just sat and drove. So this husband and wife, they're older, and they're sitting in the car. They're driving. And this is back when they had bench seats. And the wife's over there, and the husband's over here. And she says, Henry! He says, yeah, Maud. Well, how come we don't sit together like we used to? And Henry sits there quiet for a second, and finally Henry says, well, I didn't move. Well, the truth is, if you've moved away from Christ in your relationship, he didn't move. God's not going anywhere. He hasn't gone anywhere. If, you've not, if you're not as close to him, you move. And this happens. It does. I can remember times I was closer to Christ than I am now. But with all of life's stuff that it throws at you, like, oh, I'll get too busy, too busy to pray, too busy to read my Bible. I have to, so many things on my plate. Like someone once said, if you're too busy, you're too busy. Cut some things out. Your relationship with Christ has got to be your priority in life. Look, years ago, I went to a uh, men's conference when I was in college. And I think, the, I think the guy's name was Steve Farrar or something like that. And we were at Travis Avenue Baptist Church in Fort Worth. And I remember him saying, you need to, the one thing I walked away from, was, from that seminar was, with was, you need to prioritize your life according to who will be crying loudest at your funeral. And I've kind of done that in my life, except that my priorities in life are, number one, my relationship with God. Number two, my family. Number three, my work. And number four, my church. And I know a lot of people would probably want to rake me over the coals for making church fourth on the list, but I believe God honors it when you take care of your family. Number one thing in your list, on your priority list, needs to be your relationship with Christ. Don't neglect that. If you're too busy to spend time with God, you need to prioritize and take some things out of your life. Now, y'all know I work for AT&T. But if you get rid of your Dish TV, your, dish, your Direct TV, or your U-verse, I'll be okay. If that's what it takes for you to get closer to Christ. So he tells them to remember how far you have fallen. Look back at where you used to be and where you are now. The second thing he tells them in verse 5 is to repent. It's pretty clear right there. He says, repent. Repent is one of those words that for some reason has gained a negative connotation over the years. When some, we, we, we picture this short little round preacher with a short tie that's too short, standing on the street corner shaking his family Bible at you, yelling repent, turn or burn. And so we see the word or hear the word repent and we think it's a bad thing. But in reality it's not. Repentance is a good thing. It's, it's here's the definition. It's a summons to a personal, absolute, and ultimate unconditional surrender to God. And though it includes sorrow and regret, it is more than that. It's repentance is a complete change of direction. It's a 180. Here's an example of repentance, 180. My wife and family and I were in Chicago a few years ago, back before Julia was born. 
I had just graduated boot camp, Navy boot camp, and we decided to stay in Chicago for a few days and see the city. I don't drive in big cities. I have this big fear of driving in big cities, so I, I refused to drive in Chicago. So we would park, we, lived, we stayed outside of town, we'd park at the airport, then take the train into town, and then we would take public transportation all around. So we're going to go from, we had just, I believe, left the Sears Tower, or whatever it's called now, we're headed to the Shedd Aquarium. If you've never been there, it's an incredible place. We get on a bus, and now you know, you know, right? Lake Michigan is on the east side of Chicago-ish. So we get on a bus, we need to head east. So we get on a bus, and we're driving this, we're riding this bus, and the bus is going, and my wife looks at me, she says, are we going the right direction? Because we've gone way further than what I think we should have gone. And the scenery is changing to, it doesn't look like somewhere the Shedd Aquarium would be. And I'm like, absolutely not. I just graduated Navy boot camp. I know how to tell directions. Can I get an amen? Okay. So I was pretty confident we were going in the right direction. After several blocks, my wife says, will you please go ask if we're going in the right direction? I'm like, there's no need to ask because we are going in the right direction. So after a few more blocks, and the scenery is changing even more, she says, let me interpret what she says. Go ask directions. So I was like, hey, I'm going to go ask directions because I think maybe the bus driver doesn't know where he's going. So I, the next stop, I go up to the bus driver, and I say, excuse me, bus driver. And he says, yes, young passenger. I said, are we headed east? And he laughs. He says, no, we're headed west. I'm like, well, you're going the wrong direction, buddy. The aquarium's that way. And he goes, no, you're headed the wrong direction. So we get off the bus at the next stop. We cross the street. We get on the bus going the right direction. We had to do a 180. We had to repent of the way we were going so we could get where we are supposed to be going. This word repent that Jesus tells them means stop going the direction you're going and turn around and go the other direction. He's saying you're not too far from me that just this can't be fixed. That we can't renew and work this relationship. God never gives up on them. He never gives up on us. And Jesus tells the church, repent. Turn around. Quit going away from me and come back. I've told you all the story of the co-worker I had a few years ago. We called him Puddin. That wasn't his real name. His real name was Paul, but we called him Puddin. He's a big, rough, tough cowboy guy. He broke horses for fun. Now, I don't know if break means he rides them and, or he actually broke them. But that was Puddin, big, rough, tough cowboy. And Puddin has a son who is an adult. And somewhere along the way, something happened in the relationship. And they had a falling out, and they haven't spoken in years. So as Paul and I are talking one day, he's telling me about his son. And, and this is a rough, tough cowboy guy. Last thing I'd expect is for him to start tearing up, and he is. He's tearing up. He's about to start crying. He says, Jason, I miss him so much. I'm like, have you gone to him? He goes, I've done everything I know to do. He misses his son so much, and he's done. I said, have you reached out to him and trying to apologize and make things right? He goes, so many times. He goes, there's nothing in this world I want more than a relationship with my son. And God is telling these people, there's nothing I want more in this world than a relationship with you. Please come back. 
I died on the cross to make this right with you. Stop running away from me. Let's renew this love we have. The third thing he tells them is to repeat. Verse 5, he says, remember then how far you have fallen, repent, and then do the first works, or do the works that you did at first. He says, repeat. Repeat those things that you used to do. What was it that you used to do so long ago that caused you or kept you in love with Christ? When's the last time you sat down and just read your Bible for the sake of hearing God's Word speak to you? Some of us are like, well, I just got to read my whole Bible in a year. If I want to please God, I've got to read my Bible in a year. Well, honestly, that's your expectation, not His. God never says you have to read so many chapters, verses a day. Never says you have to read the whole thing in a year. He just wants you to talk to Him and He wants to talk to you. Just read your Bible. Just for the pure joy of reading it and hearing God talk to you. Don't do it so you can check it off your list today. Do not add your time with God to a checklist. Can you imagine my wife if I had a checklist of things to do today and talk to Jeanette was on there? She'd be like, oh, really? You just have to pencil me in? That wouldn't go well. God doesn't want to be penciled into your list. Remember those things and do those things that you used to do so many years ago that made you fall. Now, look. If it was serving on a bus ministry and, and, and nothing brought you closer to God and gave you more joy than a bus ministry, now maybe he's not saying go do a bus ministry because uh, it's not 1973. Uh, now, I, I, back in the 90s, I worked a bus ministry. I think that's like uh, boot camp preachers or something. It was rough. Anybody ever worked in bus ministry? A couple of people did bus ministry? Oh, it's a joy, isn't it? In fact, those non-air-conditioned buses, picking up kids, you get to church, and you're drenched in sweat and have kid stuff all over you. It was awesome. Whatever it is that you did so many years ago that caused you, that kindled that flame of passion in you, if it was telling everyone you knew about your relationship with God, about what God is doing in your life, do that. If it's sitting down early in the morning before anything else goes on and opening up your scripture and reading God's word, do that. If it's spending two hours in prayer, just you and God alone. He says, do those things, those first works. There is no, in, in, in God's service, there is no, I paid my dues. I did my time, somebody else's turn. That doesn't work. And God wants you. God longs for you to rekindle that passion that you once had. He wants you to come back to him. He wants his church to follow him with an enthusiasm and a vigor and a passion like they haven't seen in forever. He says this, Jesus does, in verse 5, very last part of the verse. He says, otherwise, 
I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He says, if you keep going down this path that you're going on, church at Ephesus, you will die. When he talks about this lampstand, look in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. He says, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. That lampstand is their gospel witness. If they continue on this path where they're going, they're going to become another one of these churches that either ceases to exist or is just so irrelevant it's just a country club. Because they're doing absolutely, absolutely nothing to further the kingdom of God. Fifty some odd years before, there was this impetus. Preaching the gospel, some incredible men and women of God who were moving and working in Ephesus, seeing the Holy Spirit move. And there was this impetus which caused this church to do incredible great things for God. And then there was this momentum that kept them going for years. But that impetus was never applied again. The Spirit wasn't moving there because the people were just going through the motions. Shady Grove, the Spirit is here. And the Spirit is moving in Shady Grove. And we have this impetus. We can't let it go. We've got to allow God to do something great here to keep us going, to have that forward momentum just keep us going and God is going to do something great and you'll see. And one day you'll look back and you'll say, wow, remember that time? Remember, repent, and repeat. God's doing great things here. Let's see him continue. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes as we have just a, a brief invitation. Father God, we are we're a church that's in desperate need of your Holy Spirit. And God, in the past few weeks, we've seen him move here in incredible, miraculous ways. God, I'm seeing cooperation. I'm seeing initiative. I'm seeing people do things in your church that I have never seen before. I've had people who are not part of Shady Grove come up to me who have visited here and said, the, uh, the Spirit was obviously, is obviously in this place. God, we all see it. We all feel it. We all know it. God, may we, if we're far away from you, may we come back to you. Help us to repent and turn around and run back to you where you'll be with your arms open wide embracing us. And help us to fall in love with you all over again. In Christ's name. The altar is going to be open.